1: I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials and other high profile public figures. I'm very excited for my special guest today. He is an exceptional member of Congress whom I admire very much. Uh, He's a genuine leader who fights tirelessly for the rights of all Americans and even people around the world. Uh, That's New Jersey Congressman Frank Pallone.
0: The Blunt Post with Vic.
1: Congressman Frank Pallone, a Progressive Caucus member, was sworn in for his 17th full term in the U.S. House of Representatives on January 3rd, 2021. Since 1988, Congressman Pallone has represented New Jersey's 6th Congressional District. Congressman Pallone serves as a leader on critical environmental issues, women's right to make her own health care decisions. He led the passage of the Affordable Care Act the ongoing fight for equal representation and equality for all Americans. He stood up to his own party in opposing the Defense of Marriage Act and continues to be a leader in the fight for true equality for LGBTQ Americans. He serves as a co-chair of the Congressional Caucus on Armenian issues. In 2002, he was awarded the Mechitar Ghosh Medal by the President of Armenia. Congressman Palone.
2: Hi Vic, how are you?
1: I am well yourself.
2: Good, good.
1: Thank you so much for doing this. Of course. <laughs> with your schedule and everything on your plate, I'm very grateful. Oh, you're welcome. Is you're
2: your, you Armenian?
1: Yeah, I am. My last name was Butchered through multiple generations. No, oh, I
2: figured it was probably ended with an IAN, but now the way it is now, it sounds like it's Italian.
1: But no, you I, are- I get that sometimes.
2: But you look Armenian.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm all Armenian. They they do doubt me though when I when I go to Armenia at the airport. I always get that sort of that sort of uh, suspicious look at first, and I'm definitely Armenian. I tell them, look at my nose. Does it look like you know it's not Armenian?
2: Well, Italians and Armenians look a little like, but I, you you definitely look Armenian.
1: <laughs> true true well first i just want to thank you i've been uh, i've been a super fan of yours for many years um, you have truly been a, a crusader for i don't want to say armenian rights because uh, it's not all about us and we are in america and it's about everyone's human rights um, but for sure um, for a tiny not, tiny nation and tiny uh, diaspora uh, we couldn't have uh, had anyone to fight for us um, and what's happened with between genocide recognition that you managed to get to the finish line in 2019 and uh, and now we've put something else on your plate. So I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart.
2: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you.
1: So Congressman <clears throat> um, I just want to ask you first that just a general question your perspective on uh, what happened in 2020 with the attack on Artsakh? Uh, of course, I know, you know, from your your statements and such. But maybe in hindsight, what's your perspective on what happened?
2: Well, I think that um, you know, you always have to take these dictators' uh, word when they say they're going to attack you, or they're gonna, they say they're going to. Uh, resolve things through military means, you know, I think a lot of people say, well, do they really mean that? But I usually take them on the word when they say they're going to do things bad. And, uh, you know, basically all along, Aliyev has been saying that he intends to resolve the Artsakh uh, situation through military means. And that's what he did. Um, I think that he had, um, you know, two advantages, maybe that we didn't, Realize one was that he would have direct support from uh, Turkey, you know, with its generals and its uh, and its men and its uh, equipment, and that also um, they were able uh, over the last ten or twenty years to upgrade their military uh, so that they had um, new technological means of content of conducting the war, particularly the drones that. Um, were very high tech, and that uh, Armenia did not have or didn't have access to. Um, so, to me, those were the most uh, important aspects of this that were maybe not anticipated. I'm sure some anticipated them, but I didn't, and I think a lot of Armenians didn't anticipate it. Um, and I also think that um, there was this notion that somehow Russia was going to prevent uh, Armenia from going to war, which they did not do. Um, Thankfully, they did come in at the end, and, and, and I guess from what we could see, save Artsakh from being totally overrun. But uh, you know, because of the fact that now um, the Armenian Artsakh are separated, other than through the Lachin corridor, which is controlled by Russia, um, it is much harder to defend uh, Artsakh uh, militarily. And um, you know, we, we just have to. Uh, Accept the fact that this occurred and see what we can do to protect Artsakh, keep it Armenian uh, through diplomatic means, um, and um, you know do whatever we can to, to 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 secure it for the future, whether that be military, diplomatic, or whatever. But the military options are more limited now because of the separation of the land area.
1: Correct. Um, I want to ask you about the diplomatic means, but uh, a question about your, you called on Congress to investigate Azerbaijan for war crimes. Where do you think that's going to uh, going to go considering Azerbaijan's uh, very powerful lobby and uh, its uh, resources, well, you know, oil and gas for uh, so many Western powers?
2: Well, I wouldn't worry so much. I, I'm not to say to reject it completely, but I do think that this war has landed most of the West uh, you know, clearly on the side of Armenia, right? In other words, if you ask um, congressmen, your typical congressmen, uh, even if they're not part of the Armenia caucus, which so many of the us are. Uh, whether they be Democrat or Republican, they realize that Azerbaijan was the aggressor. They realize that Turkey was behind it. They don't see Azerbaijan or Turkey as allies, even though anymore, even though uh, Turkey is still part of NATO. I think most members of Congress would see Turkey increasingly as a threat and enemy rather than an ally. Not only because of what they've done in um, in Artsakh, but also what they've done elsewhere uh, in the region and in other part in other parts of the Mideast and, and uh, the Mediterranean. Um, so um, I wouldn't worry so much that, you know, Western allies see uh, you know, uh, Azerbaijan's gas or natural resources as a factor here. I think the, the concern is that um, Armenia and Artsakh are you know, more dependent on Russia for their security than ever and and we wish that that wasn't the case. I mean, we want to step up and have the United States more involved in in the security of Armenia Artsakh, more link our trade and our economy, um, and also be very supportive of these democracies. You know, because I mean, Armenia and Artsakh at, at this point are of the former Soviet republics or or autonomous regions, or probably the, you know one of the most democratic. Uh, there is, and that's important to us. Um, so, uh, you know, our Armenian focus and myself have really been trying to step up and say, look, the US needs to get more involved in the midst process uh, in, in relations and trade with Armenia and, and Artsakh. Even though we don't recognize Artsakh as an independent country, we recognize that it's Armenian and that its future must remain Armenian. I
1: like that. I like that you, you kind of gave me a soundbite for the end of the film, which I want to end it on a hopeful note. When you said that, um, uh, you know, after this war, after this attack, uh, most people or most uh, Western powers see Azerbaijan and Turkey as the aggressor. Because sometimes, even me as a journalist who sort of lives this twenty-four-seven almost, uh, just reading constantly. Uh, I feel like some organizations and bodies and agencies seem a little tone deaf. So one doesn't really know, but you are, from inside out, you see this. So it's really good to hear. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jurami. You're listening to my interview with the Honorable Congressman Frank Pallone. In terms of diplomacy, and you just mentioned the OSCE's Minsk Group, I was just reading a few days ago from the Russian delegation that they're having a challenge going to Artsakh in order to sort of, you know, reignite this uh, process in peaceful means. And I thought if, if Russia and the US and France are having a hard time getting in Artsakh for, you know, what is a, a diplomatic uh, process, what, what chance do we have?
2: Well, I mean, the, I mean, the Minsk Group is being held up, you know, primarily right now by Azerbaijan, right? In other words, they don't want to participate, and um, part of that is to say that you know, if the Minsk Group co-chairs want to visit the region, they have to go through Baku and not through the Lachin corridor, which is absurd. Right. Um, but I mean, it's it's an overall policy of the of Aliyev saying. You know, we don't really want the Minsk group involved in deciding the fate of Artsakh. And we have to insist on that. Um, but there, you know, Aliyev is is increasingly not interested as I have said in a diplomatic uh, uh, settlement. If, you know, I don't know, maybe I use the word settlement. Um, I mean, that's clear. He continues to say that, um, you know, Artsakh is, to Azerbaijan, and we will determine its fate. And uh, right now, the only, you know, the only uh, practical uh, way that that's being prevented is for the presence of the Russian troops, which is important. But I hate to say, I hate to see Russia play an increasingly uh, significant role because I worry about how much they can be depended on to defend Armenia and Artsakh. But right now, we have to recognize that they're the only—they're the only uh, game in town. Without them, uh, you know, uh, Ali, it might just, you know, continue the war on our side.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, uh, Russia proved to be less reliable than imagined in the in the beginning, and it, at some point we didn't know if it was playing all three sides. Uh, but as you said, unfortunately, it got to a point where no one else stepped in, and it was either the Russians or they would uh, basically do complete ethnic cleansing of Artsakh and what was left, including Stepanagert. Where, where does it go from here if, if Aliyev is not letting Minsk group will go into Artsakh? Uh, to investigate and to restart the process. Is is the U.S. Uh, able to, ins- you know, inject or insert some power?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I think that um, we should insist on the Minsk group because that's, you know, it was set up for that purpose, right? But, um, you know, I, there's a lot of things going on that I think could lead to Azerbaijan Ultimately, or Aliyev ultimately, uh, you know, participating again in this group process. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, the uh, the Armenian government is, you know, meeting with the Russians. Uh, um, they're also meeting with uh, Turkey, right? I mean, I, I think that any effort to reach out uh, through diplomatic means with Turkey, with Russia, with Azerbaijan. I mean, all these things are useful and. We want to get away from this idea that uh, everything's going to be resolved militarily, right? Um, The threat not only to Artsakh, but to Armenia itself in the south and the border areas where they've been clashing. Um, And so my hope is that as all these diplomatic uh, maneuvers continue, that ultimately we can get back to the Minsk group uh, and that would involve the United States and France as well as Russia. But it's important for the United States to continue to say, look, we're here, we want to use the Minsk group, we're going to be involved in Armenia, we're going to give humanitarian assistance to Armenia, to Artsakh, we we want the prisoners of war returned. All these things, many of which have been initiated by, you know, here in Washington by the Armenia caucus, are important to make the point that this needs to be resolved diplomatically but keeping in mind all the time that we take the position that Artsakh has and the people there have a right to self-determination and they have a right to determine their own faith as Armenians I mean we're never going to get away from that
1: that's that's really important that's at the essence of what we're talking about Um, in terms of the you know I'll just speak for myself I was very excited (laughs) for a for administration change when President Biden came to power. And uh, of course, um, I won't even get into it, but I mean, I personally think that uh, President Trump being in the White House uh, uh, enabled, especially Erdogan, uh, but also Aliyev to do what they did. So I was very hopeful when President Biden came and of course he recognized genocide after 160 years, but then a week later, Section 907 was lifted uh, and this, um, you know, this massive military aid was given to Azerbaijan. But moving away from that, because I've heard all the sort of reasoning behind it and all of that. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jurami. You're listening to my interview with the Honorable Congressman Frank Pallone. What with with people like yourself and other uh, members of Congress, Senator uh, Menendez and Congressman Schiff and Congresswoman Speer and, and such, and many others, what is happening, or I should say, what isn't happening? Is there like a blockade to the State Department or the White House?
2: Well, I think that the, that the you know, before the November 2020 uh, war began, Those of us within the Armenian caucus, the co-chairs, myself and others, were pushing the State Department um, not to provide this $100 million in aid to Azerbaijan. As soon as we found out that it had been authorized, we still were trying to prevent it from actually being sent, right? And the, um, the, the, the State Department takes this position, which I reject, that this was not military assistance. Because we had always had an agreement that any military assistance, be it training or whatever, had to be on a parity basis between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and they took a position this was for customs inspection, drug interdiction from the borders in Iran through the Caspian Sea. To me, that was all nonsense, but I think they really believed that. I mean, I, I, you know, Vic, I, I, you know, maybe they're just naive. I don't know what the word is, but they really believe that this had nothing to do with the war now. I do think that some of that could have been used in the war, right? But beyond that, it sent a very bad signal that we were gonna send all this assistance to uh, Azerbaijan and we weren't doing anything for Armenia, right? So um, you know, part of what we're doing now too, I don't know if this answers your question, is trying to convince the State Department that there shouldn't be any more military assistance or anything like it. You know to Azerbaijan. You know that's actually an amendment that we have to the Foreign Operations Appropriations Committee, pass the House. Hopefully, we get it. Uh, you know, an agreement with the Senate, I guess, to the President. Um, also, that um, um, you know that the prisoners of war. We have sections in the uh, in the Defense Authorization Bill that already passed and so was signed into law that says that the prisoners of war have to be returned. So we're trying, I hate to say we're educating the State Department, but in a fashion it is, right? It's like, you know, you can't make process. These yeah, you can't make these mistakes. You can't buy into this notion that you're going to help Azerbaijan and it's going to be used for peaceful means. That's just not true, right? I mean, it's a lot easier to make those arguments now than it was before the war because they hadn't taken military action. I think a lot of people in the State Department never believed it was going to happen, but, um, but, um, and we also have um, this report that was uh, that was put in the um, uh, defense authorization bill that that I had the language that you know looks at uh, human rights abuses uh, in in Azerbaijan. So we're trying to, and you know, ultimately, I would even advocate sanctions against Azerbaijan or Turkey itself. But that's hard to get, you know. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't want to give the impression that the Biden administration was purposely doing anything uh, that was harmful. And this stuff actually began before Biden during the Trump administration. I think you're right when you say though, that um, the problem with Trump and the difference between Trump and Biden, one of the differences, you know, Trump you know, wasn't a big advocate for, for democracy, right? I mean, I gotta be honest, right? So he cozied up to Putin, he cozied up to, to Erdogan, because I think he liked their, their their kind of strong men, dictatorial attitude, you know? And the Biden administration clearly understands that democracy in uh, Armenia, in the aftermath of the Velvet Revolution, and certainly in Artsakh as well, um, has, has is, is something precious and needs to be encouraged. And is it a sign of, you know, their, the Armenians ties to the West and to the United States. I mean I never meet with the ambassador uh, from Armenia or today we actually met with the uh, the National Assembly president the equivalent of the speaker and when we met with the prime minister anytime I was in uh, uh, Armenia after the Velvet Revolution all they do is talk about democracy and how important it is and the importance of the parliament yeah. you know this is uh, and that has been conveyed, and I think the Biden administration is very much aware of that's why we need to step up and be more supportive of Armenia, in part because of the democratic values that they share in the aftermath of the Velvet Revolution, which I think were always there, but manifested themselves after the Velvet Revolution in a very obvious way, and continue to.
1: Absolutely, I was going to say that because, you know, I'm. Yeah, you know, I don't hold back, and the fact is that that we had there were a lot of uh, issues with democracy in Armenia from '91 to 2018, and it is a young, uh, you know, the democracy part is about three four years old, and and it could revert back to having oligarchs control parts of government. So it is really important, and I think uh, Armenia has put in a really fragile position, um, where it doesn't have a lot of natural resources to offer, it doesn't have a lot of, uh, um, you know, neighbors that are, are friendly, and Russia is not very reliable. Uh, thank goodness for, you know, the diaspora and uh, people like you, congressmen, who, uh, who advocate for human rights. I don't want to take too much of your time. I have uh, just... Uh, Well, my last question would be on a positive note, going forward and being in the solution, right? So people, you know, some people are pessimistic or not hopeful. Um, What tangible and, uh, you know, just realistic, hopeful uh, things you have to to say or see, or of course you don't have a, a, you know, a crystal ball, but do you see coming up? That we can sort of uh, be hopeful about, if you will.
2: Well, I really want to stress to the Armenian Americans and you know, the diaspora, I guess we call them, how important it is to continue to be involved, right? To continue to talk to your members of Congress and your senators about Armenian issues, to tell them to you know join the Armenian caucus, to continue to be aggressive about promoting Armenia because that's important. I mean, you know. A lot of what we do in the Armenian Caucus only happens because of the diaspora, you know, contacting members. And um, you know, I, I guess I could say two things. I mean, you know, I when I came here to Congress over thirty years ago, uh, and if you had told me that we were going to see the day when the Armenian genocide uh, resolution passed in the House and the Senate, it was and was openly. Uh, uh, you know, stated by an American president, I would have said, I don't know if I'm ever going to see that day, but we saw that. day, And a lot of it was because of the continued act, activism of the Armenian diaspora. And the other thing I would say is, look, we, we've all studied Armenian history. Armenians have been around for, I would say at least, or probably about 3,000 years that we can figure that we can go back to, you know, the ancient civilizations. And, you um, And they're here to stay. In other words, you know, a lot of people come and gone. There's certainly been ups and downs, periods when there was no Armenia, at least no independent Armenia. So, you know, take a solace in the fact that, um, that um, we can accomplish things and we're gonna keep Armenia strong and we're gonna, you know, have a, make sure that our sock stays Armenian. But a lot of that, at least from a US point of view, is dependent on Continued activism by the diaspora. So please, uh, people like yourselves, Vic. That's why I asked you if you are Armenian, although I could just look at you and tell. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they uh, they uh, they are playing an important role in all this and influencing what we do in Congress. So thanks again.
1: No, thank you, uh, Congressman. Absolutely, it's faith without works is dead. You can't have bl- blind faith, and we certainly can't just expect our members of Congress to just go like that and things happen. We've, we've got to do the work too. Congressman uh, Pallone, thank you so much. I truly, truly appreciate it. Hope to meet you someday and, Absolutely. Uh, and hope to maybe watch the finished film with you. Maybe not, but either way, you'll get to
2: see it. All right, thanks a lot, Vic, take care.
1: Thank you. You too. Well, that was my interview with uh, Congressman Frank Pallone from New Jersey. Uh, An interview I'd been (laughs) hoping and wishing for for a long time. So it was truly an honor. I'm very grateful. Uh, Thank you, Congressman, for your time, uh, for doing the show, as well as uh, doing the interview for my upcoming documentary film, Motherland. Uh, Much, much, much appreciated. The Blunt Post with Vic. Fassel Gill is an immigrant, a progressive, a civil rights attorney, veteran, and a father of six. He is the leading candidate for LA City Attorney in the upcoming November elections. Fassel beat other candidates in the June primary elections by a wide margin. His top priorities are restoring trust to the office by bringing real accountability to the LAPD, pushing for progressive and pragmatic reforms, and taking on corruption wherever it exists. Good morning, Fassel. Thank you for uh, joining me on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you
0: today? Oh, thank you very much for having me. I am doing great this morning. Congrats on
1: uh, on your uh, campaign and all the successes uh, coming up with uh, with the most votes in the primary.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's, it's, How do uh, you feel? I feel wonderful. Such a great honor to have the trust of so many Angelinos, you know. So I feel really great. I mean, our campaign did a great job, and uh, I feel very good.
1: That's fantastic. So
0: you let's let's sort of,
1: you know, sometimes we assume that every listener knows what every office does. The fact is that a lot of people don't. You know, like say they don't know, for example, what the L.A. County Board of Supervisors really do or Assembly members do. So. For those who may not know what the L.A. City Attorney does, um, just explain it in in any way that you like, maybe a a Reader's Digest version.
0: Sure, sure. Uh, The first thing I will tell folks is that the L.A. City Attorney is different than the District Attorney. A lot of people make that confusion. They think it's the same office. It's not. It's a very different office. So the City Attorney uh, has all of the misdemeanors that take place in the city of LA under their jurisdiction. The city attorney is also the advisor for the city council, the mayor, and every other department within the city. And then the city attorney uh, defends any lawsuits against the city, and then can also has the ability to file lawsuits on behalf of the city against you know, people, corporations, companies, anything. So that's the job of the city attorney. Pretty easy like just I well, you know me. just I uh, uh, just another job
1: <laughs> wow it's just so overwhelming um yes uh city attorney is not district attorney that's george gascon, george gascon. Uh, who's been on the show several times so thank you for that that's that's actually pretty um pretty easy to understand for for you know those who may have sort of questions and such as we where we are today um you know we're about you know, a month or so from the election, what's your perspective on where we are uh, as a nation starting, and then as a region, the greater LA region, where you'll be your office will be, um, it'll be your jurisdiction, what's your perspective or where we are um, as a nation, as a region, politically and otherwise?
0: I think we have a lot of issues, you know, we have a lot of issues to solve. And unfortunately, we're living in a time that's so decisive, you know, uh, divisive. I mean, uh, it was decisive too, but it's so divisive that you really can't, it's hard to get to a compromise. The word, you know, it's like the word compromise has become almost a curse word. Nobody wants to do it. People want to just have one view. And if you have anything to do with anybody else's view, you know, it's wrong. Uh, there are a lot of issues that we need to deal with as a nation and as a region. You know, as a region, certainly we have to deal with, um, you know, uh, we have to deal with homelessness. Homelessness is certainly, you know, uh, and in fact, in, in a lot of other cities too around the nation, homelessness is a, is an issue. And that comes from other, that stems from other issues, affordable housing, um, that's become an issue here. I mean, those are all things that we have to deal with. From my perspective, as a city attorney, you know, one of the things that I believe we have to deal with is police reform and criminal uh, justice reform. I mean, a lot of people are getting criminal records for very low level offenses that go on to ruin their lives and go on to hurt them and us as a society. And that's what people don't need to understand is, you know, I see a lot of folks who who talk and they say, well, you know, the person should not committed a crime. It's just to them. Well, it's not just about them. You have you have a person who gets a criminal record? They can't get a job. They can't do anything else. What are they going to do? They're going to be, you know, burden on society. So we need people out there who don't have those criminal records. So uh, we have a lot of, pro- a lot of very serious problems to solve. And unfortunately, uh, because of the times, it's it's much more difficult to solve those problems.
1: Yeah. Do you feel like, um, you know, coming into this office now is any more challenging in 2022? then it would have been or it has been for some of your um,
0: people uh, before you, city attorneys before you. Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. Look, we are living in an age of Twitter. We are living in an age of Instagram. We are living in an age of instant communication, right? Everything that takes place. And we're living in an age where the communication is very short, small, right? Twitter's what, 160 characters. Uh, it, it's just very short sound bites. We're living in you know, sound bites and a lot of these problems, sound bites, you can't explain them in a sound bite, but they get people excited and they get people angry in a sound bite, right? You put one little sound bite out there and bam, people are there. You know, like with me, people, uh, you know, I have certain policies that are out there that, you know, uh, I think will make things safer, but people sit there and say, oh, Fastl Gill is not going to uh, prosecute any crimes. Well, that's just not true. That's not what I've said but that's the soundbite that's out there. Now you're facing that, now you're fighting that soundbite. And the only way to explain yourself is through a you know, regular policy to say, no, that's not what my policy means. And the policy means we're gonna review and we're gonna see what we actually need to you know, prosecute and what we don't need to prosecute. But, oh yeah, I think it's a lot more challenging to be an elected official right in 2022 than it was you know, uh, certainly in 1992 or even 2002. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um- For those of you just
1: tuning in, uh, this is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you're listening to my interview with Fassel Gill, civil rights attorney who is also running for LA City Attorney. Um, Fassel, uh, you were talking about uh, police reform and I know that that's that's one of the top priorities for you. Um, Two things pertaining to that, one, it seems to me, at least, that a lot of your um, policies and a lot of your views are very in line with uh, District Attorney George Gascon. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I would say it's fair. Yeah. Okay. Do you consider yourself a progressive? That title, that label?
0: <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I, I, absolutely. I, I don't view the word progressive or that label as a pejorative. I, I, I would absolutely say that I am a progressive. Yes. I like
1: that. I really I, I respect people who own um, who own it and don't don't let others redefine what that is. Right. You know, I remember years ago we were we were at a protest um, and someone said, you know, liberal has become a bad word. But people forget that it was the liberals who started the the uh, labor movement, the women's movement, the civil rights movement. You know, so let's just own that. I love that. Um, exactly. I love that. Yeah. Now. Now. Uh, So there are a couple of tough questions I'm going to ask you because I just need to know for myself. And also, I think people listening are going to be curious. One of them is, you know, as a civil rights attorney uh, years ago, it's fair. We should definitely say this was a long time ago. uh, You were not for uh, marriage equality. Some people call it gay marriage, but it's marriage equality because it's not just gay men getting married. Uh, But you've come a long way since then. So um, just explain that
0: yeah no you're absolutely right back in 2006 i was not for uh marriage equality you know i, I felt that civil unions um were were adequate would give you know uh LGBT community the, the same rights uh you know since then i've learned that that it's not i mean marriage is a very big thing and it's a very important thing and you know i'm married and it's important to me to be married so i can't deny people rights um, and it was a very—I'll be honest with you—it was a very difficult transformation, not because of the, not because of the issue, because of my introspection. That oh my God, I'm being discriminatory, right? We all, everybody likes to think of themselves as fair-minded. They don't discriminate. They're equal rights. Everybody. I mean, I would say you, you go to the, you know, most conservative Republican, they'll think of themselves as the same thing. That oh yeah, no, of course I don't discriminate. Of course I'm fair-minded. But I, when I actually looked at the issue of marriage equality, I thought, oh, my God, I'm not, I am being discriminatory. I am discriminating against a whole section of the population, uh, you know, based on what they believe. And that's just wrong. It's, it's absolutely wrong. And it's very difficult to come to that realization and admit that you were discriminatory. Not a lot of people, you know. But it's
1: uh, very refreshing. Your honesty is very refreshing. A lot of politicians who have had a change of mind for whatever reason, they sort of play it down. Yeah, uh, but you're owning it, and that's, you know, I was, uh, I don't know, a f- couple of days ago, I was talking to someone about politics and how, you know, I'm just, I'm very blunt and direct, and I appreciate politicians and and people in public service that are that way, but some people have such a hard time. They 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 speak in sound bites, as you were saying. They speak in rhetoric, right. and um, you know, it's like just own it and let's just go past it. You know, let's, let's just move on. Um, which brings me to the next one, which is another tough one. Uh, as you know, I'm, I'm not just a gay uh, American, I'm also an Armenian American. And, uh, you know, Armenians are going through, and I say going through because it's not over, uh, the toughest, uh, most tragic part of our history since the Armenian genocide. In 2020, right. uh, nations of Azerbaijan and Turkey orchestrated a genocidal assault and ethnic cleansing against the Armenians of Artsakh which uh, unfortunately continues today. Um, oh. It was during that time that I found out um, as journalists covering it, that uh, Turkey had hired mercenaries from Syria, Libya, and Pakistan. And we should tell our listeners, you're, uh, you're American of Pakistani descent. And right. uh, of course, some will think, well, what does what this got to do with city attorney? Um, it does because a lot of constituents of yours um, are Armenian-American. And also, um, I think it's just one of those elephants we've got to point out and talk about. And, you know, of course, that has nothing to do with you, the fact that there were Pakistani mercenaries killing Armenians. Uh, and then I found that Pakistan is the only nation in the world, <laughs> including Azerbaijan and Turkey, that has not recognized Armenia. Yeah. Not even Artsakh, but Armenia. And I thought, well, what is, what's going on with this? And so, you know, there's that... Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's this ongoing thing that's happening, and it's Armenians are on edge right now, uh, and for good reason. So uh, I just, I just was curious about your perspective. Again, you know, you're your own person. You're here in the U.S. Yeah. with your wife and six children. It's got nothing to do with you. But I think it is important, and it's apropos for me to ask you uh, what you, f- how you feel about that, and and what happened, and Pakistan's position uh in Armenia and really sort of being a cheerleader for Azerbaijan
0: yeah no, look, first, let me say unequivocally, and I mean unequivocally, what, what Azerbaijan and Turkey uh, did in Artsakh is absolutely wrong, and I agree with you. It is, it is a continuation of genocidal killing. So I am 100% against what they are doing. Uh, and as far as Pakistan is doing, I'm 100% against that as well. And I do think that they should recognize uh, Armenia. I mean, it, it absolutely is foolish for them not to recognize Armenia. And, you know, what I've said is if I am able to be elected a city attorney, Uh, I think I'll probably be the highest ranking uh, Pakistani official elected because there are not too many Pakistani officials that are elected, especially being of Pakistan. And I was born there. I, I moved there when I was eight years old. So being Pakistani and, um, uh, you know, being born there, but being the, the city attorney for the second largest city in the country, I think will put me in a little bit of a, little bit of a position to, to put some pressure on Pakistan or at least talk to the officials here that, look, we should recognize Armenia and they shouldn't be siding and doing this, you know, war. Uh, you know, it really amazes me. And one time that, that the entire world has come together and is against Russia's invasion of Ukraine And when it comes to what Azerbaijan and Turkey are doing in Artsakh, the response wasn't the same. I mean, the response should have been the same. Azerbaijan, there should have been, you know, sanctions against Azerbaijan. The world should have just basically, uh, you know, ostracized them like they're ostracizing Russia, but that didn't happen. And I think that was wrong. I think that is wrong. It should happen now.
1: Yeah. The double standard is uh, it's just really, really painful. Because it it's almost identical. And and Russia right. also had a role in the invasion of Artsakh too. Right, exactly. It wasn't too far from the from the Putin uh, you know jurisdiction. Right. I appreciate that. Thank you for that. Um well, no, of course. It's really important to um, um talk about that. Uh, you know, I want to go back to what has been, because I've been interviewing a lot of, uh, elect, not just elected officials, but people who are um, campaigning for different offices. And of course, the the top item on their list just keeps coming up, which is the unhoused, the homelessness issue. Right. And you brought that up. Yeah, uh, I'll be honest with you. I don't know how much of a city attorney's office um, has anything to do with that, any no. control over that. Of course, I don't think any one person has control over that. This is a much bigger issue than any one office. It's a national uh, issue. It's a it's an issue about disintegration of the middle class. It's an issue about income uh, income uh, inequality. It's an issue about uh, just inflated housing prices and all of that. But what well, first is what would your if any your office have to do with homelessness? And if so, how would you contribute to
0: that? So the city attorney's office plays three important roles in homelessness. First, it advises the city council and uh, the mayor on whatever policy proposals that that they are proposing, whether those proposals are legal or not legal, constitutional, not constitutional, can they do that? So that's a very important role the city attorney plays. Uh, You know, second is if there are lawsuits, which there are many, that uh, people file against the city regarding homelessness. The city attorney has to decide how best to deal with them. Do you, you know, do you settle them? Do you fight them all the way? What do you do? How do you defend them? And lastly, and and, uh, just as importantly is, you know, what do you do with the homeless population, the houseless that are out there on the streets? Now the city council has, you know, I don't know why, but they've been focused on, you know, more of an enforcement, you know, clearing the encampments and Putting people in jail and, and and getting them out there and of course I want to see that too I want to see the encampments cleared we don't nobody deserves to be sleeping out on the streets, however how we do that is very important as city attorney what I've said is you know there's an ordinance that they passed city council passed which is 4118 uh, that I said I'm absolutely against it because I think it's unconstitutional, and that ordinance is basically will allow the police to arrest a homeless person who is sitting laying sleeping on the sidewalk and. And to me, that's just not the appropriate way of taking care of homelessness. So the next city attorney is really going to play a huge role in, um, you know, uh, in the homeless policy that's being developed. Wow, I, I
1: I didn't, you know, I didn't have an appreciation of, of how much uh, the city attorney's office has to do with uh, all of it. It's just all tied. It's all tied together from the city to oh yeah the supervisors.
0: See, the city attorney's office is in the middle of just about every single issue that takes place in the city of Los Angeles. I mean, it's one of those offices that are not really focused upon a lot, uh, but it is absolutely in the middle of just about every, every policy that takes place.
1: Wow. Thanks for that. What are, yeah, what's on your agenda for the next almost two months leading into the election?
0: Well, we're you know we're campaigning. We're campaigning hard. Um, talking to people, talking to voters is the number one important issue. So, you know, I'm going out to as many events as I possibly can go out to. I'm talking to people. Uh, we're canvassing. Uh, you know, uh, you know, out there together with other candidates, by ourselves as well. We're gonna start. You know, phone banking, phone texting, or not phone, texting, phone banking. Uh, and then, you know, afterwards, just a regular communication. So the next two months is just meeting as many voters as I possibly can and, you know, getting our message out there to as many people as we possibly can get it out to.
1: Okay. You've been endorsed by uh, a great many organizations, individuals, elected officials, uh, members of Congress, etc. cetera. Um, I know you probably don't want to single anyone out, but just give us a highlight, a few that have meant the most to you.
0: I mean, look, uh, you know, as far as uh, let, me, let me do a different way, organizations and uh, uh, people, people, you know, I would say that the matter, uh, you know, Supervisor Holly Mitchell, who's been just fantastic. She's she's endorsed me, you know, Isaac Bryan, Sidney Kamlager, who's going to be our next congresswoman, who's just been, you know, just beyond uh, fantastic to me. She's been a wonderful person. Um, and you know, I highly recommend that you have her on, on your show if you already haven't. She's just a great, great person. So those I would say would be the, the, the people, and then Isaac Bryan, also who's a young, you know, assembly member who's just been taking the assembly by storm and really focusing a lot on criminal justice reform. And he's a real leader in that space. So I think those have been a lot as far as institutions, you know, the unions. The more unions I get, the, the better I feel. I mean, you know, I've got the two largest ones in LA, uh, SEIU 2015 and 721. They, they represent the working people. They represent the folks who are, who make LA run, you know, from, from nurses to, um, you know, to everything basically. And, and, and I feel real, I feel real proud to have their support and have their endorsement. You know, I've got the doc workers. I mean, just the unions are the ones that I just, those are the ones that I really, really am proud of.
1: Absolutely. And it's important, uh, you know, just, you know, I'm a big union uh, supporter and uh Especially with the with the income inequality, unions are more important than ever. Um, so that's uh, uh, that that's just that's just incredible. Thank you for that. No. Well, Fassel, what haven't I covered? What question or questions have I not asked you that I should
0: have? No, I think you've asked pretty much a lot of questions. I mean, I can tell you what my you know I said my agenda that I'm running on. As I said, is you know criminal justice reform. Uh, police accountability and not criminalizing poverty uh, you know i'm going to be a very aggressive attorney going after corporations who are who are hurting the working people so that's that's the agenda that i'm running on you know
1: and i mean and who doesn't like that well except for the cor- corporate executives who make inflated yeah. salaries
0: exactly. <laughs> chambers of commerce corporate executives they're right. certainly not supporting me in fact they're scared that i'm going to win so that's why they're supporting my opponent
1: well it it looks like you're going to win so Hopefully uh, good luck to you. And if people want to reach out to you, support, donate, uh,
0: volunteer, etc., will you give us your website? Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, www.gil4la.com. For That's forla.com, So www.gillforla.com. lacom
1: Fantastic. Uh, thank you, Faisal. Uh, good luck uh, uh, and all the patience to you in the next uh, month or so until, until election. Appreciate you being on the show.
0: Thank you very much for what you do, uh, getting the word out there. And I really appreciate you uh, interviewing me. Thank you very much.
1: That was Fassel Gill, who is uh, the leading candidate for LA city attorney. Uh, It was definitely a pleasure uh, chatting with Fassel. I appreciate your time uh, and I hope to chat with you again soon. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Vic at VICGERAMI Thank you
0: The blunt post with Vic